If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. there's a gap in the general historical understanding of what happened in the sort of central lands of Islam, which has led to a perception of Muslims and Islam in general as being impervious to change and resistant to modernization. That was Christopher de Belague on common misconceptions about Islamic culture and the history of the Middle East. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of April 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. This week's episode is a world history special to accompany our new bi-monthly magazine, BBC World Histories. Our interviewee is the journalist and author, Christopher de Belague, whose latest book is The Islamic Enlightenment, The Modern Struggle Between Faith and Reason, which explores the question 
of how the Muslim world has adapted to wider changes taking place in the 19th and 20th centuries. Putting the questions to him was the journalist and author Yasmin Alibi-Brown. I wonder if you can just give me your pitch. What you, you can't summarise such a book. But what is the main argument, if you like, that you're making here? Well, if I start with the premise um, and then move on to the argument, I'd say that the premise is that there's a gap in the general historical understanding of what happened in the sort of central lands of Islam, um, which has led to a perception of Muslims and Islam in general as being impervious to change and resistant to modernization, full stop. And if you look, uh, generally, the counter-argument is taken back to Baghdad in the 9th and 10th centuries and the wonderful efflorescence of Islamic culture and the contribution that Islamic culture made to world, world culture at that time. But if you put that to one side, people say, well, what happened after that? We don't see any uh, much evidence for a kind of progressive and pro-change agenda um, in the Muslim world. If you look at the... Uh, central lands of Islam in the 19th and early 20th century, as I do in this book, you find, on the contrary, a, a very vital and real engagement with modern ideas, modern technologies, modern conundrums uh, that really belies that whole image. And you find people engaging, sometimes with difficulty, sometimes with per perplexity, um, but sometimes very joyfully with ideas and technologies that they consider to be universal and not simply something that has been foisted on them or imported from the West. But there, there were instances earlier. I mean, there was the Golden Age, then there was the Imperial Age, and I think a lot of this happened during the Imperial Age. But um, there were also, I think... Um, Quite a lot of examples, weren't there, when uh, you mentioned the, uh, Robert Shirley who went to the Persian court, um, the immense respect because what they found there really enthralled them or the playwrights who wrote about the Mughal courts um, and um, uh, Lady Mary Montague Wartsley who went to Istanbul in the 17th century and was amazed by the culture and the innovation because the vaccination thing, because I was reminded of her in your book, you talk about um, somebody whose grandson or son died of smallpox. Way, way back, they were using for, for smallpox vaccination. So there is there were people in the West, particularly in England, I think, who had this understanding that the, you know, the Muslims were very innovative. But what you're, the period you're handling is the most problematic in a way, isn't it? And because so much of these um, um, free thinkers, scientists and rational people who most of them did manage to live within their faith and still have this side, were considered a suspect, part of the colonial brainwashing mission, if you like. I think that's right. And I think you're, you're right to, to bring up the earlier instances of, of fruitful cooperation and indeed admiration going both, were, uh, both ways. I was struck the other day reading um, letters that Voltaire had written. And Voltaire was, is famous for having supported Catherine, Catherine the Great in her um, incursions against Ottoman Turkey. However, in, in other areas, particularly his treatise on tolerance, which came up 
bubbled up as a result of a major international incident where um, a Protestant family had been persecuted by Catholic France. He referred directly to the court at Istanbul as being a place that by comparison was a beacon of tolerance. Um, the Shirley brothers you mentioned in Iran, a great sense of respect. Shakespeare mentions um, with, with respect in many, in many instances the Islamic world. Uh, so it, it's not a uniform picture, of course. When you get to the 19th century, uh, I think there's an acceleration of history. There's an acceleration of contact that makes processing all the things that are coming in and all the things that are going out much, much more fraught and much harder. And as you say, those who are trying to bring in ideas, particularly those who've been to the West, uh, were always vulnerable to the charge that they were furthering a sinister agenda of colonial exploitation. Because at the end of the, Napoleon, the, the Napoleonic Wars and the invasion of Egypt in 1798 was very much part of a much broader strategy by Napoleon to, if possible, go all the way to India. And that, um, that colonial uh, agenda then went forward in the 19th century. However, it didn't go forward to such an extent that these joyful and interesting contacts were cut off. And I think that is an important point in my story um, because I feel that uh, there's another cutoff point after which it became much, much harder to bring in World ideas. World War One. World War One. We'll go to that in a minute. But I'm really interested in this character. I was completely taken with him. Uh, Rifa? Rifa Tatawi. Yeah. Will yeah. you tell us a bit more about that? Well, Rifa Tatawi was a, um, an Egyptian cleric. Uh, he was... Uh, he fulfilled the role of a chaplain to the army of Muhammad Ali, who was uh, the first great authoritarian... Uh, modernizer of the Middle East after the end of the Napoleonic invasion uh, in the early stages of the 19th century. Um, and he came from a tradition of, uh, of, uh, of clerical authority. Um, and under that tradition, the clerics had exercised enormous authority, partly because of their monopoly over knowledge and the written word. Uh, what Muhammad Ali did was to send educational missions um, to Europe, uh, in this case to France. Quite a large one went. And Rifah went um, along with that mission. There were many other um, uh, boys of, of different origins going from Egypt. There were Armenians, there were Circassians, there were Arabs, there were Turks, all on this mission. And Rifah went along and he produced a travelogue at the end of this time, which was a kind of summation of his view of what he'd seen. And he came away with a very vivid admiration for a great deal about France that was completely unencumbered by a sense of inferiority or a sense of resentfulness uh, because he saw um, these values as something that Egypt could learn from and could also grow with. And he became one of the, uh, in some ways, one of the founding fathers of the modern Egyptian nation state. Uh, but not in a prickly and xenophobic form, because his, in his history writing, he went all the way back to pre-Islamic Egypt, and he acknowledged the debt that Egyptian culture owed to to other cultures. It was a, a remarkable sort of synthesis in He's his mind. He's an amazing character. I knew nothing about him. Um, but of course... Uh, well, well, if I may say yeah. so, if you don't know anything about him, imagine what, uh, what the majority... 
story. I mean, there's and people, so much here. The characters in this book are lamentably ill-known, and, yes. and, and yet they had, uh, you know, formative uh, influence. You start the book with Jane Eyre, which I think is a lo- very lovely way to start, but also to make people understand that actually humans have been are more alike than we like to think. But then you come to this Turkish woman. Would you tell her, again, totally unknown by me, and I'm fascinated. Well, I, I bring in Fatma Aliye quite early on because um, it's part of a section of the book where I stand up the character of Jane Eyre, uh, set in roughly around 1820, um, operating autonomously, using modern technologies, taking her own decisions, working as a teacher, uh, changing her situation without recourse to a father or any other kind of male figure for permission, falling in love with the person she wants to, and all the rest of it. And I asked the question, well, what what was the situation in, in the Islamic world at that time? Would a Jane Eyre character have been feasible? And I quickly come to the conclusion that it would have been in, uh, unfeasible. However, by the end of the century... Um, some 50 years later, you have a character like Fatima Aliye who was brought up, I think in common with many other uh, of the early feminists around the world. She was upper class. She was given an education. She uh, She had the opportunity to learn French, although she had to do so in secret because her mother considered French to be a kind of Trojan horse for all sorts of uh, infidel and impious thoughts. So she learned French. Um, she started to use the nascent medium of the press to get her ideas out. Uh, this was a world in the Ottoman um, heyday when the steamer was entering, the telegraph was entering, the press was entering, um, table manners were entering. You know, all sorts of things were coming into Istanbul and churning. So where are we talking about now? We're talking uh, the 1870s and 80s. I'd say the 1880s and 1890s were really her heyday. She she started to... uh, She wrote novels. She wrote... um, uh, She contributed to the press. To begin with, women would contribute to the press as an Ottoman lady or... um, a, a person with long black hair, or they would use these little um, pseudonyms, pseudonyms like they had here, exactly as they had here. Um, and then gradually they got bolder, and their demands grew bolder. And Fatma Aliya was an early proponent of what later became a major um, sort of movement among uh, Ottoman and Iranian women and Egyptian women uh, to express all sorts of desires and thoughts and perplexities that had never been publicly debated before that the, the the nature of of female society was of segregation it was discussing all these things behind closed doors whether it was um, in the hammam or whether it was behind the lattice work of uh, an upper class house it was all discussed closed doors and suddenly you're addressing an, a, a body of opinion that you don't know they may be um, you may your articles may be translated and suddenly um, discussed in Alexandria or Beirut and so this 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 process of the acceleration of the transfer of ideas just comes into play and this is modernization this was the modernity coming and and being grasped and what was interesting um, what is interesting in what you say is they didn't see it as a threat to Islamic civilization, they saw quite a lot of it uh, as enrichment. And I was very struck by what you were saying about 
the dilemma over dissection, for example. I mean, there was a, they knew they had to get the scientific knowledge, but there were these things about you can't undo what God's done. And if, I'm so interested because we are living in times again, because that happened, I think, during the, as you say, after the First World War, this idea that of them and us and, and any cultural or, or scientific or uh, borrowings weaken us or take away our usness. And that is growing, isn't it, across the Islamic world? I think the sense of usness is. Um it's the first time I've used heard that phrase, and I, I think it's a fabulous phrase because it what it means is the word authenticity is so much more boring. Usness is very good. What constitutes us, and what is um, what is threatening our usness? I think it's um, it is not only present in the West, but it's being answered in the Islamic world. It's being answered in in uh, Modi's India. It's it's a it's a spreading movement of reaction to globalization or the the erosion of of usness in the islamic world something like dissection was clearly you had to move away from move on from the galenic um uh, theoretical approach or the avicenna's approach and um start examining the human body under laboratory conditions but how do you do that when the prophet says you mustn't. Well, you need someone of in a religious position to justify that. And that is what gradually happened. The one thing that I think is really important for readers to understand when they read the book is how colonialism, and it's at its most ugliest, both French and particularly British colonialism with Cromer and so on, kind of made it impossible for the enlightened Muslims to flourish because they could so easily be accused as they were, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the feminist writers, the scientists of being stooges, of being tools of empire, of having been educated in the West and therefore not being properly Muslim or Arab. And that, I, you know, is an, a very important thing to, to point out, isn't it? That how colonialism interfered with what was a very good process. The process is clearly something that has universal appeal, but um, if it's being if it's being propagated by a, a machine which is at the same time a machine of of, um, of of domination, political domination and economic domination, then obviously it becomes extremely easy to call anyone involved with that process stooges. So you see. And I write about it in the book. You see a lot of careers um, damaged, a lot of hopeful beginnings ended, uh, a lot of fine minds cut off um, because of this easy, easily levelled accusation sure. of being of being a stooge. Um, the, the the Grand Mufti of of um, Cairo at the beginning of the twentieth century, Muhammad Abdu, uh, was not only a a very fine and respected theologian. He was also someone who corresponded with Tolstoy, who came to England and yes, visited Herbert yeah. Herbert Spencer, who who visited, um, who took the waters in uh, in Switzerland. He was extremely cosmopolitan, and he uh, he exemplified that whole that whole approach. 
as a result, and because Britain was in uh, was running Egypt at the time, and Lord Cromer, who was essentially the viceroy uh, in Egypt at the time, favoured Abdul, his uh, his position was rendered completely untenable. And so when he started bringing in um, very forward and innovative new fatwas about what was permissible and what was uh, illicit for Muslims, it was easy. He, he was easily shut out, and he was shut out, and his career was destroyed. In in the book you say, that's what was the great, if you like, the great break from, you know, the kind of almost unplanned, informal, natural, holistic uh, cultural exchanges and modernization that was taking place. Then comes the dreadful First World War, dreadful for everybody, all sides. What happens? Before the First World War, there was what we could call a liberal moment in the Middle East, Turkey and Iran had both had uh, revolutions that brought in and established a form of parliamentary democracy that, that clearly had a very strong liberal component, was interested in, in, in broadening the franchise, in limiting the powers of the crowned head. Egypt had had a similar um, revolution that had only really been thwarted by British invasion in 1882. But there was a strong sense that the direction of a society was going towards a liberal interpretation of freedoms, uh, political and personal autonomy. The First World War obliterated the physical geography. Uh, it left behind, I mean, you know, the, the the mobility that you find in the armies in the in the in the Middle East in the First World War contrasted so so very strongly with the immobility of the mar of the armies in in on the western front whole areas uh, you know thousands of miles were crossed um crops were destroyed famines were were induced um borders were treated with absolute impunity and what you ended was a kind of tabula rasa with uh, uh britain and france essentially creating new states egypt remained under british supervision iran and turkey could only avoid subjugation as they saw it by instituting a very illiberal form of westernization that drew from Mussolini's example. Um, not that they were wrong to do so, but it had unfortunate effects. And then what we find as, as a result is, I think, two strands broadly of opinion rising in the Middle East The first is that authoritarian westernization, and the second is Islamism, what we now consider to be the progenitors of the worst forms of Islamism that we see around today. When they started, the Muslim Brotherhood did not start as a political movement. It started as a movement of self-realization, of patriotism, and above all, of let's get the Brits out. And this is how it was. It was essentially to give self-respect back to Muslims, not by aping Lord Cromer uh, and the British administrators, but by a return to the roots. And so this is how the process began. And then it evolved and it developed new forms because even after independence in the Middle East, the Western penetration, the Western interventions did not cease. Where there were positive um, and very benign forms of exploration towards self-government. For example, Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in the early 1950s, a patriotic nationalist, but not at all anti-Western prime minister, demanding that the oil industry be nationalized and, de and demanding a 
a relationship of equality with the West, then that was too much for the West, particularly Britain and, and America, to swallow. And so he, he was toppled. And each time these interventions, whether it was Suez, whether it was Mossadegh, or whether it was simply a British ambassador or an American ambassador telling um, the prime minister of the day what needed to happen, it added to that sense that the only way to escape this was to return to some kind of usness, to some kind of authenticity. Um, and often what was found was a complete distortion of that original usness. It was a very modern version, sometimes anarchic, sometimes violent, sometimes tearing up the original uh, Islamic texts over what, is, what constitutes justified violence and completely rewriting them, but under the guise of a kind of stronger, more virile, uh, more nationalist form of Islam. And so you could say, couldn't you, that the kind of the ISIS or Al-Qaeda uh, phenomenons, uh, phenomena, came from exactly that source of the West is interfering in our matters and therefore the only, re uh, uh, the only way to confront them is to go back to roots. And of course, each generation is defining those roots in increasingly repressive ways. But at the same time... Uh, The, the, for me, personally, as somebody who grew up in the empire, it's deeply unfortunate that a valid political struggle against domination got religiousized and therefore became emotional and became kind of took over rationality. You know, I regret that that we didn't have an anti-colonial, and you see this in Palestine now, Palest the Palestinian struggle was never one to do with religion. It was a political struggle. Their best voices were Christian, God's sake, Edward Said, uh, Hanan al-Ashrawi. Now it's religiousized. And exactly the same thing with the anti-colonial struggles. They, Because of the Brotherhood and others, Qutub, wasn't he? He was the kind of... They, they kind of manipulated the religious feeling among Muslims and uh, manipulated and exploited them. And I find that really problematic. I think you're, you're right. And I think that the, a very interesting angle is to look at the blurring of the divide between the political and the cultural. Uh, because what is ultimately a, a legitimate campaign for self-determination, whether as a community or as an individual human being, uh, becomes infused with something uh, that is extremely xenophobic, that rejects difference, uh, whatever its source, and that infects the cultural sphere, that really does an injustice, dishonors the whole idea of the transferability of, of values, the transferability of sensual uh, of, of the senses almost of yeah. all the manifestations of culture that one can enjoy in this world suddenly get boiled down and reduced to something so so limited that the whole range of human experience becomes um, it becomes black and white instead of being full of color and full of vibrancy and this is, this is what we find that the, the closing down of cultural avenues uh, for for different reasons across Um, the Middle East or a kind of return to a spurious kind of authenticity, um, wherever it happens, is, is really a, a return to a black and white, a monochrome world. And you're so right about spur spurious um, uh, authenticity because I often have 
had quarrels with Egyptians, Saudi Arabians, you know, saying, oh, we're going back to the prophet's time. I said, why have you got a mobile phone in your hand? Do you have a computer? Do you drive a car? You're not driving around camels. So where is this thing? We're going to live, you know, going to have the beard, but you still have a phone. So it is completely spurious, but it has this appeal. of, And yeah, in a way, you might say, give us back our country in Britain is about yearning for some kind of pure white authenticity. I don't know going back when and so on. Are you hopeful that these three places that you've done most work on, um, uh, Cairo, um, uh, Tehran and Istanbul, Istanbul will be will reach a point where they will have to turn back towards you know the the places they once were i think that history shows the constant tug and and the constant ebb and flow of the ideas that i discuss in the book there will always be rebuffs and i think it takes time for uh rebuffs to be accommodated, absorbed, and eventually overturned. I don't, I'm not sure that I believe anymore in a predetermined trajectory of history. However, what I do believe in is the constant opposition, the constant and often very fruitful opposition of different ideas. And if you can set up one idea as looking towards the future, optimism, hopefulness, and you set up another idea of conservatism, fear, then in many ways these, these feelings and sentiments exist in all of us and as a result they exist in all societies. And just as we in, in our personal lives as, a, as human individuals um, have to negotiate with them every day, so do societies and, and they will do. I'm not hopeful in the very short term, but in the long term I expect to see within my lifetime a resurgence of the ideas that we speak about. I don't think that that resurgence will necessarily, necessarily take us back to where we were. It will take us to some new form. Uh, and there will always be a kind of intermingling of the, of the two. Uh, because as I say, I don't think that one is really possible without the other. It's a necessary dialectic uh, of, uh, of human existence. Coming back to now then, we are, you know, as you said, from wherever you look, modernism is being rejected, liberalism, um, cross-culturalism, um, cosmopolitanism. What is going to need to happen? Can there be stuff that can be done to move us back into what has been the most fruitful thing for the human race is this exchange? What has happened cannot be undone and some appalling things have been have been done that meant that we are where we are we we cannot we can we have to start by looking at civilizations and cultures as operated upon by other by human beings they are human operations there is nothing determined in advance so we have to look at the invasion of iraq uh and to a lesser extent of afghanistan and regard them as absolutely defining uh events in modern middle eastern history that are going to be felt for a very long time. So you start by thinking you need to avoid that kind of involvement in the future. Um, but there will always be 
calls and appeals, sometimes from within the countries themselves, that in fact you're turning a blind eye to something appalling, to appalling events that are happening inside. My feeling is that we need to avoid that kind of uh, Im- adventure in the past, no matter how, in the short term, no matter how compelling a moral argument could be made in its favour. Uh, I think that's what we need to do on the political level. Uh, we are also finding that, um, and we have been finding this for some time now, that what we have visited on other countries is is blowing back. And we have to deal with that blowback. It is no longer possible to refer, for example, to the lands of Islam without considering Britain to be one of those lands or France to be one of those lands because Islam is an extremely important and extremely influential minority faith in this religion, in, in, in this part of the world. So we cannot erect uh, mental walls between us and other worlds because these worlds have, to a great extent, fused and so I'm not sure I agree that uh, everything is all um, doom and gloom. You could argue that it has cut, it, that it has come so far this this idea of integration that what we are witnessing now is is a kind of death throw or a um, a last gasp kind of resistance. And I think there will be, as I said earlier, an ebb and flow. I don't think, for me, sitting in this room to say we we can do this and it will make things better is going to... I can't think of a single thing that we need to do. We need to retain a sense of our of our universal humanity and retain a sense uh, of, of uh, the joy of communication between humanity. I, I'm very proud to be who I am. I'm very proud to be English. I'm very proud to be British. I, the things that make me weep tend to be the, the heart-stirring English things. And yet at the same time, I inhabit and joyfully inhabit a world that is fantastically diverse and fantastically integrated. And it has taught me a great deal about the universality of our shared experience. And that is what we need to find. And we, this, the limitation of uh, introducing limits to our lives and our perspectives is not the way to grow uh, humanity. It's the way to constrict and to, and to, and to kill it. That was Christopher de Belague speaking to Yasmin Alibi-Brown. The Islamic Enlightenment, the modern struggle between faith and reason, is out now in the UK, published by Bodley Head, and in the US, where it's published by LiveRight. And you can read a version of this interview in issue three of BBC World Histories, which is on sale now. You can find out more details at historyextra.com. Meanwhile, the May issue of BBC History magazine has just gone on sale. In this month's edition, we have articles on the Reformation, the attack on Guernica, the historical King Arthur, and Queen Victoria's eating habits, among other things. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the UK, where you can save 35% on the shop price. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP216. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. A rare handwritten manuscript of the US Declaration of Independence has been discovered in Sussex by researchers from Harvard University. The manuscript is thought to be only the second ceremonial parchment copy of the Declaration in existence. The other was produced in 1776 and is currently held in the US National Archives in Washington, D.C. The Harvard research team believes that the Sussex Declaration, which was found in a record office in Chichester, was created in the 1780s, probably in New York or Philadelphia. Professor Daniel Allen told the press, This document was produced as part of the fight between Federalists and Anti-Federalists about whether the new republic was to be founded on the authority of a single united sovereign people or on the authority of 13 separate state governments. It appears to have been produced to support the Federalists' case. It illuminates the politics of the 1780s in a flash. In other news, a fur coat worn on the night of the Titanic disaster has sold for £150,000 at an auction in Wiltshire. The coat belonged to Mabel Bennett, a first-class stewardess who travelled on the ocean liner's doomed maiden voyage in April 1912. Bennett wore the coat for warmth as she was evacuated onto a lifeboat after the Titanic hit an iceberg. She survived the disaster and passed the coat down to a relative in the 1960s. The final sale price it achieved was almost double the original valuation of £80,000. Just before we go, I'm pleased to announce that tickets for this year's History Weekend events are now on sale. They're taking place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and York from the 24th to 26th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in popular history, among them Michael Wood, Dan Jones, Yanina Ramirez and Alison Weir. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be talking about the history of America, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com 
and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.